Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Michael Ward. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Glad to be with you. And to give Michael his full introduction, um, although I don't think I could cover everything, maybe a short introduction, uh, he is the author of the award-winning and best-selling book Planet Narnia, Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. He is co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis and presenter of the BBC television documentary, The Narnia Code. He is a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford in his native England, as well as being professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. His latest book is After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, and he is a Catholic priest assisting at Holyrood Church, Oxford, alongside your many academic work. Um, So clearly a lot to discuss. I know my frequent co-host Phoebe Watson is a little sad that I'm getting to do a C.S. Lewis episode without her, but we'll make make do. Um, But before we kind of get into the texts, there was something I missed up from your uh, introduction, which is your, your screen appearances of which there are quite a few, actually. I believe that you had a recent one in the recent C.S. Lewis film. Yeah, I played uh, C.S. Lewis's parish priest, his Anglican vicar, in the in the recent movie, The Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, that was good fun. And I've been an extra in lots of films over the years and, and TV programmes, uh, most notably an, uh, a James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, in which I gave James Bond a pair of X-ray specs and also, this is an interesting sort of variant on uh, on a screen appearance. Um, the book you mentioned, Planet Narnia, once appeared in an episode of Sherlock, which, given your name, <laughs> is highly appropriate. Yeah, I, a friend of mine was watching Sherlock. I've I've enjoyed these BBC adaptations too, and mm, yeah. um, but I never noticed that on the shelves in two two one B Baker Street, where Holmes and Watson live. Um, there, there was a copy of my book, Planet Narnia, both in the first season and the second season. And it's a bit of a mystery to me as to why the set dresser decided to, to put my book alongside many others, um, as if it were owned by Holmes himself, um, or possibly Watson, I suppose. But, um, but the answers that have been suggested to me are that, that Sherlock Holmes could be interested in, in Planet Narnia because it attempts to solve a mystery mm. about the Narnia Chronicles. And secondly, in The Study in Scarlet, which is the uh, the very first Holmes story ever, I think, written by Conan Doyle, um, yeah. rendered yeah. as Study in Pink in the BBC adaptation, Holmes says at one point that it would make no difference to him whether the Earth went round the Sun or the Sun went round the Earth. And given that my book, Planet Narnia, is all about the pre-Copernican model of the cosmos, the geocentric cosmos, um, that might be another reason why it was thought to be of interest to Holmes. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting because the series does make quite a big point of, first of all, that re- that reference to that original quote, I think in the series he goes, or, or whether it goes round and round the garden like a teddy bear. Mm. Um, they first of all make quite a few references to the books that are on the shelves. I think there's one episode where they're trying to solve a cipher, which is something important to the Planet Narnia book. They're going through a lot of the books on their shelves to find out if they can figure out what this this cipher is in reference to. Mm. Um, 
I think that's in the second one of the the first season, and then I think in the third one they have they have a plot point about comets that were visible in the sky at certain times in certain stages of the the human experience and so there's a painting that has the wrong comment in it so i think it's kind of interesting that it it does actually crop up as a theme in those those episodes quite a bit so i i do wonder i would i would suspect that they picked the books on the shelves quite deliberately because they're quite visible in a lot of the scenes Oh yes, no. Evidently, a great deal of thought went into the the selection of everything that you see on screen, um, mm-hmm. including some things presumably that that are never picked up on screen. But um, I, I've seen whole lists of everything that some you know nerdy Sherlock fan was able to identify, and it's astonishing how much is actually well, first of all, there to begin with, and and secondly, uh, identifiable as such. So I'm impressed at the, at the level of, of care that went into the, this dressing of this set. It's amazing. I know. It would be amazing if we could track down the set dresser who, who picked out your book in particular. <laughs> and you'll be glad to know that life does imitate art so that in the flat shirt shared by myself and Watson, there is a copy of Planet Narnia on the bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to hear it. And we do, we do get as much fun as you might think out of the fact that we are Sherlock and Watson. We had the person come around for the census recently, and I made sure to to, to say <laughs> it was Sherlock and Watson. Uh, some people don't really get it. We get a lot of, because our names are Rachel and Phoebe, people go, oh, like from Friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we say, well, actually, it's much, much cooler than that. It's also Sherlock and Watson. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Excellent, excellent. You, you, you're not yet married, are you? If you, if you get married to a man called Holmes... I hope you will have a double barrel surname, Rachel Sherlock Holmes. That would be that, great. That would be wonderful, <laughs> yes. But yeah, and you said you wanted to speak a little bit about Planet Narnia. It's a really fascinating book, and I've read you've got a more condensed version called The Narnia Code, which I've only just finished reading. Uh, as always, my listeners know I'm a little bit behind on some of the books that I would like to have finished reading, but I have read The Narnia Code at least, sure. and I'm looking forward to getting the more longer slightly more academic version in planet narnia um but i thoroughly enjoyed it and was handing around to my friends as i was reading it and and found it really fascinating good i'm glad to hear it um yeah so for any of your listeners who who don't know what the argument of these books is both the narnia code and planet narnia what i discovered in the course of my phd research into lewis's theological imagination is that the the Narnia Chronicles, the seven Chronicles of Narnia, are constructed so as to embody and express the symbolism of the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos, those seven planets that Lewis described as spiritual symbols of permanent value. Um, And they, they they are the sun and the moon, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those were the seven planets that were known about before the time of of Copernicus and the invention of the uh, telescope and uh, it's from these planets that we take the names of the days of the week of course and Lewis writes a lot about the medieval cosmos in his academic writings but also in his poetry and of course he uses the symbolism very explicitly in his ransom trilogy of interplanetary adventures but what nobody had noticed rather surprisingly is that that the Narnia books themselves are are dependent upon this imagery too. And that if you approach the Chronicles with this symbolism in mind, all sorts of otherwise puzzling details about the books begin to make much better sense. 
Um, I won't go into any details, but um, this was a, an idea that occurred to me sort of out of the blue when I was halfway through my PhD, when I was reading Lewis's long poem about the planets. And um, it's actually <laughs> true. <laughs> you, you read about people trying to shoehorn books into pre pre-established uh, you know grids of meaning mm. um, and indeed people have been trying to find the key to the Narnia Chronicles for many years and all sorts of different theories have been suggested like the seven deadly sins and the seven sacraments and, and almost any other seven that people can think of but the one seven which is all over Lewis's work namely the seven heavens had not really been considered until I came along but that is the solution to the mystery you could have started with the most obvious seven in the world, which is the week. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons people have been trying to shoehorn theories into it is because there is a slightly enigmatic quality about the the Narnia books that feels like it needs a slight further explanation. Mm. Um, and you point out in, in the book about some of the characters that show up that don't feel like they belong. And it seems like as thoughtful a writer as Lewis is, it seems strange for him to throw in, as you mentioned in the book, Father Christmas or Bacchus or these other characters that feel very contingent on the experience of our world and don't mm. necessarily strike you as obvious in, in the world of Narnia. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a beautiful thing that Lewis did. It's so clever and so subtle and sophisticated. Um, I thought I knew these books well. And indeed, I did know the books well when I was doing my PhD. But then suddenly this whole other dimension of complexity and intricacy revealed itself within the books. And I was almost literally stunned I felt, as I said, almost literally concussed, like <laughs> I'd fallen down on the pavement and hit my head because it was so unexpected. It's you know really was a bit like a, you know going through the wardrobe experience. You you think it's just a regular wardrobe, and then you suddenly find it's a portal to this whole other world. And you you think the Narnia books are uh, you know fairy tales and with biblical parallels, and then you suddenly realise oh actually no, they're magisterial. Uh, expressions of a lifelong preoccupation with medieval literature and especially cosmology. Um, it's astonishing. Yeah, I, my experience of reading your ideas was one of excitement, that kind of, that excitement that you get when you suddenly find something new or, or find a, a new way to explore something. I, I, I was very taken with that idea of how he had kind of I followed that idea through his work. I, I had only read the Space Trilogy in the last year. And I think if I hadn't had read it, I might have been more skeptical because I think in a lot of the thing, the more popular books that people read, you don't necessarily see this interest and this obsession with planets and cosmology and, and space. And um, And so it can be kind of... I think there might be a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, well, that kind of comes from nowhere, so it's probably not all that likely. But actually, it, it might be buried in some of the more academic texts or the mm. more under-read fiction of his or, or poetry, as, as you've pointed out, but that actually it's there the whole time. And I really enjoyed the Space Trilogy, but I thought it was interesting when I was getting Phoebe to guess, because you obviously line up each of the books with their respective um 
planets and I was trying to see whether as as someone who loves the Narnia series could she guess without being told and when she was guessing Venus I said to her that in because for our listeners in the space trilogy the first two books involve firstly a, a trip to Mars and then a trip to Venus and I said in the second book which is called Perilandra um, I said which of the Narnia books feels the most like Perilandra um, which is Venus. And she goes, oh, the magician's nephew. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really telling that the book, that the fiction book that he writes explicitly about Venus has a lot of resonances with the book that you argue is is the one representing Venus in the Narnia cro- Chronicles. Mm, excellent. Well, I'm impressed by Phoebe's uh, perceptiveness. That's, <laughs> that's very good because... Um, yeah, you don't. I mean, some some of them are much more obvious than others. And I think mm-hmm. if you know if you know the you know say the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and then you're told that one of the seven heavens, one of the seven planets, was the sun, mm-hmm. and it's pretty obvious that the voyage of the Dawn Treader is the solar book. Yeah, I mean, it's almost given away by the title because the ship goes to tread the dawn, the place of yeah. the rising sun, um, and it's full of gold imagery and light imagery, very very obvious once you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and Lewis could make it particularly obvious in that case because, of course, you know, the sun is the most obvious of the seven heavens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can talk a, a great deal about sunshine and, and uh, uh, sunlit waters and, and golden and golden hordes and so on and so forth without anybody thinking, oh, he's talking about uh, the alchemical or metallurgical operation of the soul as considered by medieval astrologers. <laughs> 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 of course, when it comes to Mercury um, or some of the le- the less obvious planets like Saturn, say, he's not going to start sprinkling the page with references literally and explicitly to Mercury or Saturn because mm-hmm. that would be giving the game away. That would be so puzzling that that immediately he would be showing his hand. So he'd, the, the the levels of of obviousness do vary a bit, but and, and this is why I appreciate what you say about referring back to Lewis's academic works and his poetry and indeed the Ransom Trilogy. The great thing is that Lewis wrote about these seven heavens so extensively in his other works that that we know equally well in all seven cases how he himself understood these characteristics, these qualities, Mm -hmm. these attributes. And so what I do in Planet Narnia is, is just to go through all those other portions of his output, his academic writings, his poetry, his earlier fiction, um, and show how he wrote about, say, Mercury in, in those departments of his output. And once you've got it all clear in your mind, and then you turn to the horse and his boy, in this case, you suddenly see, oh, yeah, the horse and his boy is obviously a mercurial story. Um, it's just astonishing and beautiful. And I, I found it rather moving, too. It's a little bit, to my mind, like um, a religious experience like a, a religious revelation that you understood this world in one way and now you have to understand it in this other way which is deeper and richer and more meaningful and it's it's very like um a sort of objective correlative uh, an artistic equivalent of of you know St Paul's experience on the Damascus road when the scales fall from his eyes and he suddenly sees the the reality um and i think to be honest, that might be one of the reasons why Lewis kept it secret, that he that he wanted to present us with a story which, on the surface, might indeed look a bit slapdash and hodgepodgey, 
And he was criticized for presenting Narnia in a slightly mishmash kind of way. Um, but he was prepared to be, as it were, misunderstood on that front because he, he himself knew what he was up to, but he wasn't going to tell people. Mm. And in that respect, it's a little bit like an, an enacted parable. I think this might be one of the reasons Lewis did it, that he himself had you know, undergone a life-changing adult conversion. He had conceived of the universe as bleak and meaningless, and then he had to revise that opinion when he became a Christian. And so here in Narnia, he gives, as it were, a, a portrayal of, of, an, of a magical, a sub-created world, which, which looks a little bit chaotic, a little bit haphazard. And yet, press into it, and you suddenly realize it's all designed. It's, there's, there's purpose and, and coherence and, and intelligence behind all these apparently odd details. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about why he kept it secret, because I think that's the other reason that people mightn't necessarily um, buy into this idea, which is that, well, why didn't he mention it? Mm. But I agree that the revelation, the journey into it, the the kind of uncovering it, it kind of brings the whole world of Narnia to life again, which I think is, again, quite telling in that he also saw that that was how the medievals experienced the heavens, that this it was this great thing that was beautiful and alive and moving around them and made sense of everything that was happening on earth. Now, obviously, as science went on, we understood that actually that mechanical understanding of the, the universe was incorrect. But Lewis was really keen to to bring back that sense of, and you use in your book the word tingling, because that, that's the Anglo-Saxon word for stars, that like that sense of electric aliveness about the world. And I think that's definitely something he wanted to impart to people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's very well said. The, the, the tingling aspect is almost li literally discernible once you, you become alive to this, this frequency, as it were, this planetary frequency running through the books. It's and all sorts of words, not just tingle, but other words like consider, for instance, suddenly reveal themselves to be to have this sort of second level of meaning. Because consider means literally with stars, con with sidus in Latin, from where we get the word sidereal pertaining to the stars. So to consider something is literally to think with the stars, to think under the influence of the stars. And so when... Um, you know, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when Peter and Susan go to Professor Kirk and, and say that Lucy is telling stories about a, a magical world behind the back of the wardrobe, the professor says in reply, well, that's a, that's a very interesting story from Lucy and it deserves careful consideration. Very careful consideration indeed. <laughs> and, you know, let the reader understand. In order to give Lucy's story proper consideration, you need to start thinking, in this case, in this story, with, with the influence of Jupiter, because the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is Lewis's jovial story, full of kingship and the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt and, and that whole matrix of jovial qualities that he wrote about, um, and which he thought was so valuable. But, but Lewis, being a, a philologist, he obviously knew precisely what consider meant. He didn't just see it as a, a flat synonym for think, yeah. Um, he understood that there was this planetary underpinning to the word. And, and so that's why he uses that word. 
and, and all sorts of other examples. I, I could go on for hours talking about. And indeed, since I published these books, I've discovered all sorts of further little details, some of which are just peachy. They're so pleasing. Um, but I won't, I won't bore you any further with that. We can talk about that some other occasion, maybe. Yes, I would absolutely love to to talk about it again. It's a topic that I absolutely love, and I love words and histories of words. So it's always so pleasing. And if you can think of Lewis being that careful about that particular word, I think you can infer that he would be that careful about the books that he's writing. Mm. But I think there's also a lovely way to talk about the the other book that, of yours that we want to discuss um, today, which is After Humanity, which is a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, because in many ways, The Abolition of Man is a kind of rail against the tendency of educators in particular um, to take out that sense of wonder from the world, um, to strip students of that ability to have that kind of heavenly frequency that we were just talking about and instead uh, reduce things down to a very kind of transactional or um, mean um, mean way of looking at the world. And so uh, obviously we want to get into your book, but maybe if you could give a little bit of an introduction to the abolition of man as well. Yes. Well, quite. One of the, one of the things that Lewis is, is doing in the abolition of man, and it is a very dense book, though very short. short. <laughs> um, but one of the things is to remind us that that nature, both our own human nature and nature at large, uh, has has its own integrity and its own value, uh, and it can't be reduced to you know mere matter, mere mm. quantity. Uh, at one point in the the third chapter of the Abolition of Man, he talks about how the stars lost their divinity as science progressed. Um, but it's not the greatest scientists who feel most sure that the object, namely the stars, stripped of their qualitative properties and reduced to mere quantity is wholly real. Little scientists and little unscientific followers of science may think so, but the great minds know very well that the object so treated is an artificial abstraction that something of its reality has been lost. In other words, you can think of the stars and the planets as you know so much hydrogen so much oxygen so much nitrogen or whatever they're made of uh, chemically um you you can calculate how far they are away from earth you can you can say how what their circumference is how fast they move what orbits they describe you can give all these quantitative descriptions but after you've done all that and lewis is saying nothing against that but after you've done that have you Anything else to say? <laughs> um, is there anything non-quantitative to be said about the the, the stars and the planets? Um, what about questions of value and quality? Who made them? Why were they made? Who were they made for, if anybody? What do they make us feel like when we see them in the night sky? Those sorts of questions about persons and purposes are are very important questions to ask, and not just the, the dry quantitative questions, which, which is the, the, the right and proper purview of, of the physical sciences. In other words, what Lewis is pressing against in The Abolition of Man is a, is a sort of reductive, scientistic approach to science, um, the reduction of all forms of knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. Um, no, he's saying there's, there's philosophy, 
there's art, there's humanities, and indeed, though he doesn't get into this in the abolition of man, there is religion. Mm. Um, the abolition of man is a, is a purely non-religious argument. It's, it's purely philosophical. But of course, we know Lewis to have been no Christian. Uh, and so, you know, round the edges of the abolition of man, you, you can see his Christianity poking in, as it were. Yeah, and I'm just so reminded as you're speaking of that line in to come back to the voyage of the Dawn Treader of uh, even in your world, that is not what a star is, that is just what it is made of. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you're right, it is a very dense book. And I have to I have to say, despite it being, I think it's under 100 pages, <laughs> but as I am I am not well versed in philosophy. That's kind of not not my area. Um, and so your book was wonderful to be able to elucidate some of the points in it as well. And you draw from a lot of other sources, which is very helpful and, and useful. Um, I definitely got a lot more out of reading it this time around. I'd done it for a, a book club previously. Um, but there is so many great points in The Abolition of Man that I think can resonate with any kind of reader, even if there are parts of it that you're not quite following or, or elements that you're not quite sure where he's going. I think that there are still always kind of, Lewis has that ability to, to pull out images and, and uh, references. And I think one of the ones that always really stood out for me is this um, plea. The first part of the, it's split into three parts. And the first part is called men without chests. And it's very specifically more centered on, teaching and specifically students. And he says, for every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head, um, which is just wonderful. And I think so true. I think that there's a real sense that uh, at least it's gotten, I don't think it's gotten better. It's certainly, I would say, gotten worse since Lewis wrote this, but this tendency of education to turn towards a kind of vulgar sense of um, furnishing people with, a particular set of notes that they can bring into an, an into a, a, an exam so that they can get a job in which they don't need any education that they may have previously had. They're just answering emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, the wealth that should be offered in education is kind of lacking. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you identified one of the greatest passages from The Abolition of Man uh, in, in those lines you just read. Um, it's absolutely superb. Uh, superbly written that particular passage though there are other passages uh, where Lewis's characteristic clarity momentarily deserts him and even he himself noted that there was one obscure badly written sentence (laughs) Um, so part of my guide the part of the purpose of my guide is is just to clarify what it is that he's saying um, quite apart from why he's saying it and the background to his saying it to go to your point about uh, education and uh, uh, that sort of utilitarian boldly functional approach to just acquiring sufficient information to pass exams and go on and you know get your place in the sausage factory of life and contribute your portion to the gross domestic domestic product um, little ants in the ant hill it's it's worth readers who who aren't philosophically trained 
and I'm not philosophically trained myself. Um, like you, I, I feel slightly outside my comfort zone in the abolition of man. That's partly why I wrote this guide as a, as a help to myself, let alone to anybody else. Um, but for those of us who aren't philosophically very literate, um, C.S. Lewis has done us a great service by, by writing That Hideous Strength, the third book in his Ransom Trilogy, which he said is a fictional counterpart to the abolition of man. So if you find the ideas and their expression of the, in the abolition of man a little bit complicated or a little bit not on your frequency and prefer to see ideas put to work in a, in a story where, where they can be dramatized, then turn to the, that hideous strength because th there you find a, a classic example of, of someone who has been educated in this modern way, uh, namely Mark Studdock. And we're told that he was just a glib examinee um, who who had studied uh, disciplines which required no exact knowledge, uh, and he's he's a sociologist of the worst kind, um, who who doesn't see real people. He just sees classes and demographics and and these vague uh, abstractions, and and his story, Mark Studdock's story, as as he gradually perceives his own coarseness and vulgarity and insensibility uh, and, and learns to become a man with a chest, you know, someone who can actually feel and, and in integrate his feeling with his knowledge. Um, Mark's story, and indeed that of the other protagonist, Jane, his wife, um, is, is a fantastic representation of, of these philosophical ideas. I, I think that Hideous Strength is one of Lewis's greatest books. It's certainly one I enjoy very, very highly. And Lewis himself described it as his favorite of the Ransom Trilogy books. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's a kind of interesting book in that um, as, as the final piece of a trilogy, the first two, which I enjoy enormously, are very creative in their own ways. But in terms of narratively, they're quite straightforward. They're about trips to another planet and the planet is explored and that's kind of the story. Mm. Um, and that hideous strength then comes in. First of all, I have an edition, which is just them all in, in one book. And, and you get to that hideous strength and you realize that you've got half the book left. Mm. <laughs> it's a kind of an almost a, a, a totally different beast. It's a, It does follow on from the previous two stories, but in a way that the previous two stories are almost like a backdrop to the personal experiences of, like you were saying, the married couple, um, Mark and Jane, who kind of go on very separate journeys. Mark is experiencing, I guess, he he starts as a lecturer in a university and then gets drawn into what is essentially a corrupt and corporate um, entity called NICE, N-I-C-E, mm -hmm. um, which is, what, what is it? Does it sound for the... The National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, whereas Jane goes on to have a, a somewhat more mystical and a somewhat more um, grounded and less, um, less in, in some ways, vulgar experience. And, mm. and, and it's about them having, having these kind of separate journeys and, and being in opposition to each other, in fact, being on separate sides of, a, of what is essentially a war, um, but a war that is at first being carried out by bureaucrats, which I think is very telling about C.S. Lewis's experiences with World War I, which is, again, a lot of um, uh, bureaucrats making very real decisions for people. Mm. And I think that actually the, the point about 
people whose skin isn't necessarily in the game making decisions for other people who is, is actually very important to both the abolition of man and that hideous strength. I feel like in both of them, there's this really strong sense of don't say things you don't actually believe or wouldn't carry out yourself. And there's at one point where he he's criticizing two writers and he sort of, it looks like he gives them a compliment because he says they're better than their principles. They don't actually carry this out. But in some ways that's, that that's also a very negative thing to say, which is to say you're very flippant with the ways that you talk about how we should be carrying out the project of humanity. Um, but you actually know better, and so you should you should act better. And there's a line in that hideous strength where a character is talking about one of the the professors um, who laid the groundwork for this this. Um, this group, the nice, and he says, of course, they never thought anyone would act on their theories. No one was more astonished than they when what they'd been talking about for years suddenly took on reality. But it was their own child coming back to them, grown up and unrecognizable, but their own. And I think Lewis is so powerful about saying how it is dangerous to to talk and not mean it and to say things that you don't actually mean in order, even it's, if it's to get ahead or to fit in, that's another big theme of it, but that saying, again, it comes back to this point about objectivity, that the words themselves matter um, and that you have to hold yourself to a standard of truth, which is um, an objective thing within the cosmos, that truth is a good thing and that you should you should follow it. Um, and I think uh, our last episode was on um, Man Alive, which obviously also has a section where there's a professor who's talking about how much it would be better off if they were all dead. And then um, the main character then threatens to kill him and he suddenly changes his mind. Mm. Um, I think that's another another kind of echo of that. Yes, it is. And, and you're quite right that one of Lewis's main concerns in the abolition of man is is the the raising of the next generation, mm. uh, particularly um, as they are raised through the educational system. Uh, the, the the subtitle of the abolition of man is uh, a bit of a mouthful. It goes, uh, it's reflections on education with special reference to the teaching of English in the upper forms of schools. <laughs> <laughs> A deliberate mouthful, I think, and I, I have a little explanation of, of why that is the case in After Humanity. Um, but yes, how you educate the next generation and, of course, how you raise the next generation within the family um, are absolutely crucial. And it's not sufficient um, either for a teacher or for a parent to say, don't do as I do, do as I say, um, because the next generation will be taught far more by our examples than by our words and if our if we don't walk the talk if we we say one thing in public and do another thing in private um they will notice that and and, and they will perceive the hypocrisy and they will grow up to be hypocrites themselves um so we've got a we've got a we can't just uh, the, the interesting thing about the abolition of man is that it's not just um a sort of screed against um, modernist philosophy and subjectivists and, and bad educational philosophy. It is all those things, but far more than that, it's, it's, um, it's a glimpse in the mirror that we have to bring all these questions home to roost and, and ask ourselves how well we are doing in our supposed belief in the objectivity of value. 
do we really believe in the objectivity of value or do we just say that we do when it suits us? Uh, but when we'd rather be subjectivists and, you know, and conveniently dissolve the objectivity of value so as to give ourselves an easier life, um, is that the path that we actually tread in practice? And, and that's why the, the key test of the objectivity of value that he keeps coming back to in the course of the abolition of man is uh, self-sacrifice, death for a good cause. Are we prepared actually to put our own skin in the game, li literally, possibly? Um, Lewis himself had very nearly been killed in the First World War. He'd seen men die for their country. So this was not just some sort of abstract intellectual question for him. It was a really live issue. Um, and, and he keeps coming back to it because it's when we are required to possibly suffer and maybe even die for the good that we come to, come to see whether we in fact believe it to be an objective good or not. And if we're not prepared to suffer or, or even at the extreme die for, for the good, then, then we are just subjectivists. We're blown about by every wind of doctrine uh, and we have no actual spine. Um, so in Man Alive, as you just quoted, um, you know, there, there's a sort of fashionable uh, despairing attitude. We'd be better off all dead. And then when you're actually threatened with death, you think, oh, no, there's something quite good about life after all. <laughs> uh, that, that's one way of doing it, you know, threatening someone with death. But the other way is, is, is possibly the more um, telling moral examination, not when you threaten somebody else with death, but when you yourself have to face up to suffering and death yourself for the sake of, of that which is good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that he really pulls out is that if if this is something that we do want to pass on and we recognize as good, that we can't just cut the legs out from under ourselves and expect it to happen. I think he has a line about saying um, that they probably have some vague notion uh, that valor and good faith and justice could be sufficiently commended to the pupil on what they would call rational or biological modern grounds if if it should ever become necessary, um, which again, I think also speaks to how much we take for granted that we could point ourselves in such a wrong direction that we could lose such foundational things as justice or as good faith. Um, and he ends that section of the book with another amazing quote, which is to say, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Yes, another classic section from The Abolition of Man. Um well, yes. Well, what to say about that? Um, I've been today rereading Mere Christianity, as it happens, um, ju just to slightly diverge from the abolition of man for a moment, but you'll see why I'm doing so. Um, and um, One of the best bits of Mere Christianity, in my view, is, is, is that image he gives when he's discussing moral value about um, the, the flotilla of boats uh, and that human society can be understood as as a flotilla of boats and ships going out to sea and that there are three kinds of moral question that we have to ask ourselves one is um are the ships gonna 
avoid bumping into each other, you know, so so that the flotilla can actually make progress. In other words, we need to we need to respect one another within society. We need to have moral rules governing our interactions as a community. That's the first thing. But obviously, we we can't be sure that the ships will be steered correctly if internally each vessel is is leaky and damaged and rotten and so our own personal individual moral nature needs to be attended to as well it's not we can't just farm it out to public uh, legislation we, mm. we need to be the right kinds of people ourselves internally and then thirdly um it's all very well and good for the ships to be seaworthy and not to interfere with one another but then you've got to ask well where's this whole flotilla going in the first place are they actually heading somewhere worth getting to mm -hmm. so that larger question of of you know the, the teleology of, of morality where the whole society is trying to get is is the overarching question and anyway that that's all in mere christianity but mere christianity in some ways is especially the first section is in some ways a, a popular version of the abolition of man uh, indeed lewis says as much in the introduction to mere christianity so whereas that hideous strength is a fictionalization of the abolition of man mere christianity is a as a popularization uh, in non-fictional terms of the same set of ideas except in mere christianity of course he advances beyond philosophy into religion first of all theism and then christianity yeah i think that's that's a really great point and he does such a a lovely job in that hideous strength of just pulling out the images he suggests in the abolition of man and making them kind of reality so in the abolition of man he has this idea of men without chests and it doesn't actually mean that they're smarter their heads just look larger because of the atrophy of the rest of their bodies um and then in that hideous strength he takes this sort of to the nth degree and has people sort of worshipping a, a decapitated head that has been kind of kept alive by artificial means is the the next step in human nature and that and that phrase human nature very much in inverted commas that this is our, ourselves loosed from from the the wearisome reality of having bodies but not realizing how much of um your humanity is is based in in your ensoulment in, in your body as opposed to just the the floating head yeah absolutely and that's why he in both that, that hideous strength and the abolition of man touches upon that issue which very few people want to talk about these days even even devout catholics they don't want to talk about da, 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 contraception mm. uh, but lewis is prepared to mention contraception in both the abolition of man and that hideous strength and I think one of the reasons he was interested in it as a moral question was that only a few years before he wrote these books, his own church, the Church of England, Lewis was an Anglican, not a Catholic, had revised its teaching on contraception and had opened the door to acceptance of contraception under certain very limited circumstances. Um, but until 1930, Anglicanism just as much as Catholicism, was firmly against contraception. They, they, they saw that it was um, an interference with nature, with our own human nature, which circumvented the virtues of, of self-control and continence. And it farmed out that, uh, that virtue to a device or, or, a, or, a, 
or a pill, uh, as the pill later came on stream. Um, and Lewis always had a keen eye for a chain of logic. And so I think when he saw that this change being made in Anglican teaching in 1930, his, his mind quickly began to perceive the implications and where it would lead. And so in both Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength, we see, we see the fruits of a, an attitude to nature which regards nature as so much raw material to be chopped up and moved about to suit our own convenience rather than as something which has its own innate integrity and which can't be just manipulated to suit our own ends. And although, you know, the question of contraception and sexual ethics is, is not, you know, by any means a, a fashionable uh, a topic, this attitude to nature that Lewis is espousing is becoming more fashionable, more popular and more rightly considered with regard to the natural world in general. Yeah. Um, you know, the the climate crisis ha has forced this issue to the, the top of the agenda. And, and people have realized, oh, we can't just treat nature as as a rubbish tip and expect there to be no long term consequences for ourselves as a, as a species. But it's that same logic of, of misusing and abusing nature in the environment, which Lewis would say is also to be to be followed with regard to our own human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because the theme of contraception does come up quite a bit in that hideous strength, but it opens with the selling of a college wood. And uh, it's amazing how within a couple of chapters that they're selling off this old wood that is on college ground and how much pain that I felt when I was reading it that I said, no, you can't let them bulldoze this beautiful old wood that doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> But yes, so you're quite right. In, in that hideous strength, there, there is um, an exploration of this theme with regard to the natural world in terms of, you know, the environment. But even before we've got to that, I mean, even the very first word of that hideous strength uh, is, is, a, is a signpost as to what Lewis is really exploring, because the very first word of that hideous strength is matrimony. Mm. And having explored the principles of masculinity and femininity in the previous two books of the trilogy with the visits to Mars and Venus. Now, with this third book set on Earth, which focuses in on the very unhappy marriage of Mark and Jane Studdock, um, we are beginning to see how masculinity and femininity either is or is not manifested in, in a real-life man and a real-life woman, and in particular, in their marriage. Because um, a marriage, or at least the word matrimony itself, is is literally... Here we come again to questions of etymology. Matrimony means literally mother-making or, or the mother condition. Mm. You know, think of, of matrons and uh, matriarchs. Matrimony is, is not just the coming together of a husband and wife for purposes of, of, of mutual enjoyment, but in order that a new generation can be procreated and that the woman can be made into a mother and indeed the, the man into a father. And of course, Mark and Jane are practicing contraception, and this is one of the reasons why their marriage is so unhappy, because they are not actually living um, into their full sexuality. They're, they're, they're fencing off one aspect of it, namely their fertility, and they're expecting there to be no consequences for their relationship. But of course, that can't be, because we are integrated beings. Our, our bodies and our souls are 
are all one thing effectively um, in the final analysis. Yeah, I think that's that's so spot on. And again, it just comes back to this this theme that Lewis keeps bringing up, which is that um, you can't get away from the reality of of being a soul in an environment and that that is created by God. And even in the abolition of man, which as you pointed out, is not a religious work, it comes back to this having to take people seriously on some level and people as, as humans and people as, as people in terms of what they're saying and what they're doing, that he's being very careful about not being flippant about our actions and not being flippant about our words, which I think is such a, is such a striking element because I think, in some ways, we don't take ourselves very seriously. And, and we've been talking a lot about that, that hideous strength as a sort of fictionalized version of the abolition of man. But the other work that it is kind of a, a fictionalized version of is, is his essay, The Inner Ring, which is all about the deals that we do to make our way in the world and gain respect from people that we probably don't actually want respect from, but we want the status of the respect. And and so in some ways that hideous strength is kind of the combination of, of both of those those two works. And I I do think I the inner ring is one of my favorite of all of Lewis's writings. I think he just sums up some things that are really powerful. It was written for a graduating class and I think it should be read to every graduating class and just to quote a very small bit of it it says and then if you are drawn in next week it will be something a little further from the rules and next year something further still but all in the jolliest friendliest spirit it may end in a crash a scandal and penal servitude it may end in millions a peerage and giving prizes at your old school but you will be a scoundrel and I think that message is really important because it's not about succeeding it's about the principles of the matter it's about being someone who isn't a scoundrel and i think when you're reading the abolition of man you get the feeling that he's very frustrated with some of these writers for essentially being scoundrels and i think it's telling that the abolition of man while being a philosophical work does start with a a, a look at a textbook a textbook as you pointed out for for secondary school kids it's teenagers it's not uh, it shouldn't be an important book, but this is exactly the moment at which he's saying these are where your ideas are being synthesized. And not only in, in a philosophy class, but in an English grammar class where they have no real place. And again, goes to a sense of not taking language seriously. Like we've been talking about how serious he takes every single word. And he seems frustrated at the inability to discuss language as language, as opposed to a means to an end of what people should and shouldn't feel about literature and poetry and words. Yeah, absolutely. I love the inner ring too. I think it, it should be mandatory reading for all graduating classes uh, and possibly y younger students too. Because, you know, when you're... 15, 16, 17, and thinking about A-levels and university applications and why, where you want to get in the world and why. The Inner Ring is, is, is a beautiful expose of the compromises that, that we make along the way uh, in order to, you know, satisfy whatever ambitions that we have. We're prepared to cut corners, or we will turn out to be prepared to cut corners uh, in shocking ways. Um, by our middle age if we take the wrong steps when we're teenagers because mm. it's by little and little that's the thing and that's what's so b beautifully depicted in that hideous strength that Mark Studdocks his, his uh, descent into well what is effectively a kind of hell by the end of his story mm -hmm. um, 
his descent is gradual it's smooth it it's it's it goes you know the moment of truth passes him by without his being aware that he has actually taken a seemingly irrevocable step now with without spoiling the story too much in mark's case it turns out not to be irrevocable mm-hmm. he's one of the few people who actually escapes from the nice uh, but most of the rest just you know, find find their 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 moral tergiversations, um, if that's the right word, inescapable. Yeah. At one point, he's finally asked to do something, and he says, "This was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be criminal. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. Certainly, there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner, and that's so Lewis to make it. And and and, and then again later, when he's reflecting on it, he says. Um, that it, he just can't get over how dreary and how, yeah, that he has a sort of, sort of sense of disgusting dreariness about looking at his life because he has done this the whole way through um, and that it has it has been the wrong thing, but in no way a glamorous or an exciting or an uplifting thing. And maybe it felt a little like that at the time, but really when you look back, it's so empty. And he says, um, had he ever done what he wanted, mixed with the people whom he liked, or even eaten and drunk what took his fancy, the concentrated insipidity of it all filled him with self-pity. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant stuff. It's so yeah. perceptive. It, and it, it puts me in mind of the screw tape letters where hmm. screw tape says to the patient uh, that the, the real success uh, in tempting human beings is is when uh, the the human being at the end of their life looks back and says, "I've spent my life doing neither what I ought to have done nor what I enjoyed doing." Mm. That's a real victory for the the, the tempter. And as regards these uh, these little peccadilloes, the, these small sins, that again is 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 absolutely what the devil. Uh, likes to use in order to to have his wicked way with us. So this is Screwtape um, writing to Wormwood in chapter 12 of the Screwtape Letters. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, he's addressing his nephew, the junior tempter, Wormwood, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters was the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, i.e. God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's just wonderful. I think that's exactly what makes Lewis so compelling. And listeners to the podcast will know we did a New Year's episode on that phrase, neither what I like nor what I ought, which oh, was did you? Right. based of our New Year's resolutions. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Oh, marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> to avoid doing exactly that. Um, but yeah, I think he's so great at taking, at first of all, writing those things in, in their, you know, sort of academic or lecturely form and then synthesizing them in a way that isn't 
it isn't beating you about the head. I know sometimes Lewis gets a little bit of accusations of being obvious in some of his imagery, but I think really he just has an amazing ability to synthesize these great philosophical and moral and theological ideas and, and portray them in stories that are very compelling and interesting and relatable. Yes, and in the, it's particularly in the case of Screwtape, witty. Yes. That's the brilliant thing about Screwtape. He, he makes it all fun. And we actually laugh at, well, first of all, the devil, but then we find that we're laughing at ourselves and our own moral compromises um, because because Lewis does it so cleverly. Um, he's actually imparting a great deal of, of moral wisdom, mm-hmm. but in a way which we can't really object to because we see the truth of it so much. We, 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 see, we see our own face reflected in this mirror and... That's that's one of the reasons why I think the Screwtape Letters is is perhaps after the Narnia Chronicles, uh, Lewis's greatest work. It, it, it's um, an absolute classic of, of of moral observation. Really, it's and, and not always moral either. It's just sometimes it's just psychological and social. Yeah, he, he's such he's got such a keen eye uh, as to how people interact with one another and um, take offence at one another unnecessarily. Uh, but he does it all with so, with such a you know wicked gleam in his eye, w- wicked in the best sense of that word, um, <laughs> uh, that he sugars the pill and it goes down so efficaciously. Absolutely. And I could keep talking about this for hours and hours, but I promised I would keep this to a relatively good time schedule. So I think we will close it out there. I have one last question that we always ask our guests, which is, what are you enjoying at the moment? Ah. It can be anything, books, films, or uh, non-tangible things work as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm enjoying writing my next book, which is going to be a book of film reviews. Um, so I've just been watching A Man for All Seasons, which is one of the books, one of the films I'm going to be reviewing. And, and that has reminded me what a brilliant story is told in that movie and what a fantastic hero of conscience was Sir Thomas More, Saint Thomas More, um, so I've been enjoying that. And I just last night started a new novel, which was recommended to me by a good friend. Um, it's called Any Human Heart. I'm only one chapter in, but it's going very well so far. So uh, hopefully that will um, not disappoint as I get further. I can't yet recommend it as a book, but I, I can recommend the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are great. And actually, I can follow up on your your film theme for my own recommendation. And again, you seem to be um, putting the, the nail on the head for everything because our next episode, uh, Sneak Peek, will actually be about films. But I recently watched for the first time, it had been on my list for ages, but Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn. And it's just a wonderful, glamorous movie that I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure we can make those anymore. They're just so effortlessly glamorous that it just feels like a total world when you're watching it. So that's what I'll recommend. And then finally, is there, uh, you've mentioned your next book. Is there any way that listeners can follow your work and what you're up to? Yes, I have a website, michaelward.net, and I'm on Facebook too, so people can befriend me there. Yeah, the next book is going to be called Popcorn with the Pope. Uh, and I'm, it's a guide to the Vatican film list. Wonderful. Which I'm writing with my friend David Baird, and we've got a contract with Word on Fire Academic, and the, the idea is that it will be submitted by Christmas this year and published ahead of Christmas next year. That's, that's the time frame. People should keep their eyes peeled for Popcorn with the Pope. I can't wait, because that, li- that Vatican list has some really 
I think for people who have a very narrow idea of what Catholic art is, I think it has a lot of films on there that they would be surprised by. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm surprised by many of them, and uh, some of them I've never even heard of. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one, one, ne next year, or when the book comes out, Rachel, maybe you'll have me back on this podcast and we can talk about that book. I would be delighted. And other than that, I'll just have my usual sign-off. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the podcast on Risking Enchantment Podcast on Instagram or follow me on at Seeking Watson on Twitter. And we will be back shortly with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.